This week on Excelsior Journeys, I sit down with lawyer and activist Jeffrey Deskovic. At 16, he was arrested for the rape and murder of one of his classmates at Peekskill High School. At 17, he was convicted. And for 16 years in a men's maximum security prison, he fought to overturn his conviction. He's here with us to tell his story, which may be a little too intense for younger listeners. So listener discretion is advised. JLD, do the honors. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire. And you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening to over 80 interviews I've had with so many great people. I'm really looking forward to always hearing your feedback. If you can, please go ahead and hit uh, subscribe on any of the platforms you can find on he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. If you're an iPhone user, strongly recommend the Apple Podcast app. Very user-friendly. And I really would appreciate all the support you guys are giving me. You guys are incredible. Now, Bill Shakespeare once wrote, some are born into greatness, some pursue greatness, and others have greatness thrust upon them. Considering the story that my guest has this week, greatness is not exactly the word for everything that he had to endure, but at the same time, what he's chosen to do with what happened to him really makes him uh, a great man. My guest this week is uh, Jeffrey Deskovic. Uh, Jeffrey was a Peekskill High School student at 16 when he was arrested of the rape and murder of a classmate. And at 17, he was convicted. After 16 years in prison and many attempts through himself and his lawyers to petition to get a rerun of the D- of the DNA on the scene, that was able to finally happen 16 years later. And turns out that that DNA matched a convicted killer. And so that freed Jeffrey. And instead of just going about his business, he went in a much bigger direction. And that is something that we all really need to celebrate. He not only got his uh, bachelor's degree in behavioral science, but he also got a master's degree in criminal justice and then went on to found the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which really has an amazing mission. I'm really looking forward to speaking with him to get all the details of everything that he has chosen to do and all the greatness that he has already done. And it is my privilege to introduce for this week's guest, Jeffrey Deskovic. Jeffrey, how are you, sir? I'm great. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me on. And thank you so much for being here. So before we go into your story, please tell us uh, in your own words about the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. We have as our mission freeing wrongful people who are wrongfully imprisoned or in the position that I was once in. And we also have a policy initiative as well. We try, we, we work on policy changes aimed at preventing what happened to me from happening to other people. So really briefly, in since uh, founding the organization in 2011, we've been able to free 10 wrongfully convicted people. And we've also were able to pass three laws in New York, videotaping interrogations, identification reform, DNA database expansion. 
then as part of a coalition group called It Could Happen to You, which I'm, which the foundation's part of and which I'm an advisory board member of, we were able to pass four additional laws. So oversight for prosecutors, discovery reform, and uh, that's in New York and in Pennsylvania, we were able to pass a law that would provide automatic expungement of criminal record for anybody that had been uh, exonerated. So we had the anomaly that you might be exonerated in court but you still had a criminal record for that charge you were exonerated of when you went on a job interview. So we're currently pursuing policy, further policy changes in New York. So we're seeking to get rid of exceptions that allow exceptions to the general law that uh, allow mandate videotaping of, of interrogations. We're working on a couple of parole reform bills. In Pen- then it's, that's in New York. In Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania is one of 15 states that does not currently offer exoneree compensation. So we're working on passing that there. And again, the oversight for the prosecutors. While in California, we're again looking to have the oversight for prosecutors. And we see an opportunity to kill the death penalty, which we think is important because in light of the uh, risk of executing an innocent person. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. And where my listeners find the uh, website that gives more detail about this? Yes. www.deskovic.com. That's D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C.org. I'm also uh, on social media. I'm on Instagram, on Facebook. I have a public figure page there and LinkedIn as well. And we also have a a crowdfunding campaign on the website Patreon. So, you know, if people want to get involved uh, in freeing people who are wrongfully convicted, my vision, my dream is what if there were 25,000 people that could afford three to five dollars a month on a recurring basis in order to free wrongfully convicted people? That would give us close to a million dollar budget and would allow us to hire further infrastructure, attorneys, paralegals, investigators, other essential personnel. So we could work on more than just the 10 cases that are active now. So we're working on 10 after we've gotten a different 10 out, but we would be able to work on more cases that way. And we would be able to open policy campaigns in other states, not just uh, New York, Pennsylvania and California, which we're currently doing. Fabulous. And you can definitely consider me one of those uh, one of those patrons on that site. I will be I will be definitely putting my putting my money down you know, for that. I think it's an, a terrific cause. And I think that it is something that too many people really kind of overlook. They they just they just look at someone and just because they're in a courtroom, so many people just immediately go right to, OK, what you know, what did he do and how long is he going to be put away? So it's it's really it's really amazing what you're doing here. Thank you. Yeah. I then to build off of your points, you know, really, it's not an even playing field when you're in the courtroom because, uh, you know, the public and ultimately the jurors, they do have a similar line of reason what you meant, you know, what, what you mentioned. And they think, well, you know, obviously, yeah, if you didn't do it, they wouldn't mm-hmm. have arrested you for it. Right. But actually, uh, you know, but actually that, you know, as we'll talk about in the in, in, in the interview, there's, you know, there's quite a quite a few people that are that are, in fact, wrongfully imprisoned. Unfortunately, my case is not rare. Per the National Registry of Exonerations, which is a clearinghouse of information, cataloging exonerations that have happened across the country. Just from 1989 forward, there have been 2,755 exonerations to date. Wow. It's pretty amazing. So normally on the show, what I talk about is the lightning bolt moment, which is what inspires people to kind of go in a specific direction. This was not the case for you, for your story. This was something where other circumstances really kind of came down on you. So let's start at the beginning. You're 16. 
You're in Peekskill High School. By the way, I grew up in Poughkeepsie, so I know Peekskill, right? And all of a sudden this happened. So tell us about what exactly what exactly happened here. Sure. So, so I was I was a I was a sophomore in Peekskill High School, and this I had a classmate who was in two of my classes as a freshman. One one is a sophomore. I barely knew her. She knew her name. She knew my name. I knew hers. That was really the extent of it. I think in two years we might have had one or two super short conversations. And you know, she went missing, and her body was found a few days later. At that point, there had not been very many uh, murders in Peekskill, so this basically shut the whole city down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, their you know, parents were bringing their kids to school and picking them up after school, bringing them right home. There were periodic town hall meetings, updates on the investigation, safety tips, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. In the course of the police investigation, they interviewed uh, a lot of students from the school, and some of them told the police that they might want to speak to me because I was quiet. I was to myself. I didn't I didn't really fit in in high school. So, I mean, I lived kind of a double life looking back on it. It was my life in school where I was on the fringes of the society because the kids were a little bit older than me, and I really wasn't into uh, parties, drinking, chasing girls, organized sports. But after school in the apartment complex I grew up at, which ironically was right across the street from the high school. I was kind of the life of the party. So whatever I would suggest would be what we would do, whether that was going to play kickball, basketball, ride bikes, play Monopoly video games. We made up different games. So I had this dynamic dual life going in. But the police interviewed students from the high school. Mm -hmm. So I guess their thinking was people that don't fit in who are like to themselves commit heinous crimes. They're likely suspects. But I guess that was their thinking and Mm -hmm. why they would suggest to the police to speak with me. Uh, A follow up thing. Another factor was that this was really my first brush with death. And I had an emotional reaction to it as a sensitive teenager. And the police interpreted my sensitivity and my being emotional, crying as a sign that I was. Sorry for what I what I had did. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, but then again, this that really wasn't all that different from the rest of the people in, in Peekskill because it was to the point that there was free mental health services set up throughout the town of Peekskill to help anyone that wanted it to process what had happened. Lastly, a reinforcing factor was that they the Peekskill police got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have my the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that. Mm. So for about six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me in which half the time when they would talk to me, they would talk to me as a suspect. And then when they would push too hard and I would become frightened and want to get out of there, then Jeff is this junior detective helper theme was was pushed. Look, Mm. the kids won't talk freely around us. They will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions, congratulate me that my opinions were correct. Prior to being a high school student, prior to being a teenager, I should say, Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a cop when I grew up. So this unexpected early opportunity to do this quasi-police work was how they were able to pull the wool over my eyes. They did the good cop, bad cop routine. And I began to look up to the good cop as a father figure, you know, which which my father, my actual father was never involved in my life in any aspect. I never met him, at least not until much uh, later in life. Right. So that was another dynamic. And so... Through that ruse, they eventually got me to agree to take a polygraph test. So the next day, instead of going to the high school, I went to I went to the police station where I thought that this test was going to happen. And instead, they drove me from Peekskill, which is in Westchester County, as you know, to mm-hmm. Brewster, 
in Putnam County. So it was about 40 minutes away by car. So that meant I couldn't leave anymore. I was totally dependent upon the police. My mother and grandmother thought I was in school, so they didn't call around looking for me. I had no attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat. They gave me a four-page brochure on how the polygraph worked, but it had a lot of big words in it, which I didn't understand. But then I figured, well, I'm there to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's yeah. just get on. Let's just get on with it. Then they put me in a small room and gave me he, the polygraphist, who was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator. He was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as as a cop. Never read me my rights. He gave me countless cups of coffee, which seems pretty clear he did that to get me nervous. And mm-hmm. then he wired me up to the machine. And from there, he launched it into his third degree tactic. So he invaded my personal space. He raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And uh, my fear was increasing in proportion to the time. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the polygraph test result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And so when he said that to me, that really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the cop who was pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he'd been holding them off, but couldn't do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he added that, look, just tell them what they want to hear. And you can go stop what they're doing. You can go home. You're not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term, I was just concerned my safety in the moment. I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and that no one else knew where I was either loomed very large in my mind. I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. And then there's that push-pull dynamic, the possibility of harm, this false life preserver he's thrown me. And so I made up a story based on the information that he had given me that day in the six weeks uh, run up to, to, the day, to, to the day of the polygraph. And by the time it was all said and done, I had collapsed on the floor into a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. I, obviously, I was arrested. I was charged with a murder and rape. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, I can't imagine having, having gone through that. Like that is that, that I mean, words can't describe that sort of just tunnel vision that they seem to have just like they were so fixed upon you that they never thought to continue their police work to maybe find the one that was responsible. I can't believe that, that they would do that. I mean, actually, no, like knowing how things have progressed over the years, I, I can't help but 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 believe it, <laughs> you know, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So so tell us. So tell us about what the what the whole court was, what, yes. what the whole trial was like, what what was what was happening like after you get arrested at, at 16 and then and then the trial happens. Was the trial just really quick or was it something that they just kind of let it linger for a little while for you to just kind of sit in jail? Well, I got bailed out after 35 days, but I felt like my life had basically come to an end. I mean, every time I made a court appearance, it was a major media moment from a guilt presumptive oriented perspective. I couldn't go back to the high school while my case was open. I was a hated figure in Peekskill Mm -hmm. and parents, the few kids that would have played with me, their parents wouldn't allow them to because they thought I was a murderer and rapist. Right. Mm -hmm. So I felt like really my life was over. So you know, I made a suicide attempt and which resulted in my being involuntarily hospitalized for six months. Wow. But so it took from the time of arrest up until the time of trial, it was approximately 10 to 11 months. I just wow. wanted to wow. mention that I wasn't in jail at that time, but I was incarcerated just in a different 
in a different in a different form. So in terms of the trial and just getting a little bit into putting some color to that. So a DNA test result came in from the FBI lab, which showed that semen didn't didn't the victim didn't match me. But rather than acknowledge they made a mistake, they continue to prosecute full speed ahead. So to counter that DNA, the following took place. So the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud and commit perjury. So he claimed this is six months after doing the autopsy, hundreds of autopsies later, he mm-hmm. claimed that he remembered that he forgot to document medical evidence, which he said showed that the victim w- was sleeping around, which is what allowed the prosecutor to argue that it didn't matter, that the DNA didn't come from me. That didn't mean I was innocent, that there could have been yet another person that she slept with prior to my murdering and raping her. Taking it a step further, they mentioned another youth by name that they claimed had slept with the victim, but he never set the proper evidentiary foundation. So he never called him as a witness, never asked him to give a DNA sample. At the same time, another thing happened is that the, you know, the, the police, when the DNA didn't match me, the police went back out into the field. They interviewed 17 witnesses who knew the victim in one capacity or another. And all of them told the police that she didn't have a boyfriend, that there was no consensual sex, but the cops did not document those witness interviews. And as a result of that, the defense never learned of that. The victim's family was not coming to court. So they had no idea of what was falsely being said about their daughter in court in order to try to wrongfully convict me. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the public defender that I had essentially didn't defend me. <clears throat> he never interviewed a call as a witness my alibi. I was actually playing wiffle ball when the crime happened. He never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to argue that it proved the confession was coerced and false. He never, he literally never cross-examined the medical examiner. He allowed his fraud and perjury to go unchallenged. He rarely met with me when I, when, whenever I tried to explain to him that I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room, he was always shutting me up. One time he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. And he, he wouldn't allow me to testify either. You know, when I was interrogated, there was no, it was not videotaped or audio taped. There was no signed confession. It was just the cop's word for it. And so they left the threat and false promise out of their story when they came into court. So I wanted to testify and put those facts on the record, but he wouldn't allow me to uh, testify. Another thing at the trial is that the victim's clothes were entered into evidence, including her bra, which was important because the jury asked to see what the asked to see the bra. And the, one of my statements was that I, I said that I ripped her bra off, but there's some bras you can't rip off the body. So when the jury asked to see that, that was kind of a bright spot. And it was at that point that the judge told us that the evidence had been left in the courtroom over the weekend and that apparently the custodians thought it was garbage. And so they threw it out. And so it wasn't available anymore. And so when you added it all up, you know, I was I was wrongfully convicted. And I was given and I was given a 15 to life sentence. I had been charged as an adult. I had been sentenced as an adult and I was sent to a men's maximum security prison. He, he sent he sentenced me despite telling me on the record, you know, maybe you are innocent. Oh, man. And not only did they proceed to just completely destroy you and your reputation, but then they saw fit to do the same thing to the victim like that is that's insane. You know, that, that they would go to that level to basically just kind of denigrate the victim in order to claim their case against you. That's uh, I have no words for that. Wow. 
Uh, I want to add that their actions ultimately cost another person their life because the actual perpetrator left free while I was doing time for his crime. He went on to kill a second victim three and a half years later, who was a school teacher and you know mo- mother of two. That's that's insane. It's insane that that happened. So so you get convicted and you're sent over to a maximum security prison. What was what was that whole situation like for you? Yeah, it was it was very it was very frightening. I mean, you know, it was a men's maximum security prison. Many I was 17 and they, these were fully formed adults, many of whom were guilty of serious violent crimes. I had a bullseye on my back because there's a vigilante mentality towards people who have been convicted of sex offenses. So there was there were stabbings and cuttings and other you know gang activity and other violence on, on a daily basis. And a lot of the guards were 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 verbally were verbally abusive as well. You know, at times throughout the years, you know, at times I got I got beat up. One time I lost I nearly lost my life. I had to keep fighting off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, suicidal ideation. So it was all of those. Uh, it was all of those things in, in prison. And yet you were still able to hold on to at least some bit of hope that something could happen. Were you starting the, the petitioning right away? Did you obviously you got different lawyers, correct? Yeah, I got. Yes, I got a different lawyer. So we, I ultimately so I was assigned. I was assigned a different different type of um, public defender, not from the same office. I, I'll say that I, I think I got really good representation during the appeals. It's just that the closed mindedness of, of the courts is, is what what did me in. Okay. So just putting a little color to that, I did I did file, you know, we, I did file and lose seven appeals. You know, that included several attempts at getting further DNA testing because the DNA data bank had been created. One time, I, one time I lost in court because the court clerk gave my lawyer the wrong information on the filing procedure. And that resulted in my petition arriving four days too late. So I lost procedurally on, on that basis. And the next three courts upheld that ruling. And so then my, I mean, that meant my appeals were, were over. That was 11 years in. And so the only way back in a court when your appeals are over is if there's a retroactive change in the law or if you can find some new evidence that wasn't known before that probably would have resulted in a different outcome. Mm-hmm. So I wrote letters for four years, rarely getting responses, just trying to find an attorney and an investigator to help to help me you know, for free because I didn't have any money. Right. Then I went to the then I went to the parole board where because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility and, and, and with that you know, they denied me parole you know along with them citing the uh, nature of the crime you know despite telling me in their decision that I had a good disciplinary record that I had an excellent educational record as well but so that's the that that's the legal history aspect we'll get to the exoneration in a minute but to take a half step back to your your question. Mm-hmm how I survived basically, right? So uh, belief in God was one thing. The second thing was, I thought I was just doing a year or two to the next legal proceeding, which I was sure I was gonna win because I was innocent and I still believed in the court system. I used to go to a law library and learn the law because I didn't trust the lawyers to defend me anymore without any kind of supervision. So I learned the law and that gave me a little bit of comfort and sense of empowerment. I used to collect articles on other people who were exonerated, and I used that as a motivation. There was another prisoner there, Frank Sterling, who was also wrongfully imprisoned, and we kept each other going for 13 and a half years. So we met once every six months, and 
excuse me, once every six weeks. And, you know, half the conversation would be about continuing morale-wise, and the other half would we would we would think about like what's the next move to make. Ultimately, Frank was exonerated a couple of years uh, after me through DNA. There was an elaborate delusion that I engaged in pertaining to sports. I used to pretend that I, when I would play basketball or ping pong or chess, that I was a professional player, and so were the other people. But it wasn't really like kids pretending, you know, on on a playground someplace. This was more a survival mechanism. I needed to leave the prison for a couple hours. I developed different routines. So I would listen to sports talk radio, but it, it wasn't listening to sports talk radio. It was a lifeline to the outside. I, yeah. I would collect I would collect pictures of nature scenes and there was a section in the cell where you were allowed to tape the pictures up and I would, you know, look at those and kind of travel there mentally. When they gave us televisions in the cells, when they allowed us to purchase television, televisions in the cell, I mean, rephrase. For the most part, it stayed off because I was doing legal work, writing writing letters and reading nonfiction books. But when I would have it on, I would watch certain weekly shows and mm -hmm. I would pretend like if I'm visiting with friends when I would mm -hmm. see the same show. So all of those things in total, you know, allowed me to keep going. And then a pen pal showed up in the nick of time. I had placed the ad in a newspaper in the Sacramento Bee, actually. And somebody replied that I didn't know from a hole in the wall he was a crime victim, but he, you know, believed in my innocence because of my ad. I referenced that I was innocent and that the DNA didn't didn't did match me. And so we corresponded from what turned out to be my last year of wrongful imprisonment. And like I was openly asking him in the letters, look, should I quit? Should I give up? You know, just end this. I'm never going to get out of here. Maybe I should just go ahead and commit suicide and just be done with this. I'm doing a life sentence anyway. I'm never going to admit I'm guilty. They're never going to parole me until I do. So what's the point of everything? And so really, it was all of those things that allowed me to keep going and to, and to survive. But even so, even with all of that, it was still like barely. Did you have uh, do you have a cellmate while you were in prison or were you did you have your own cell? What was the what was yeah. the whole structure like? So, so half the time I didn't have a cellmate and the other half the time I did. New York State started doing double bunking in 1995. And so from that point, from 1995 to 2006, half the time I had a cellmate and the other half the time I did not. Thankfully, I, you know, all the people that were, that I was put in the double bunk cell with were all, re, were all like, you know, level-headed, reasonable people, you know, rather than other nightmare scenarios, you know, many of which I saw and heard about. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, that's what I was worried about. Just uh, getting yeah. that, that wrong kind of cellmate that would just make your life even more of a hell than it was like, that's, I was fortunate in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Get, getting like a little bit of, uh, of levity from, from, yes. from the gods there. Yes. Wow. So, so you're petitioning, you're doing all this. What was it like when it finally happened when they finally allowed the rerun of the DNA? What was that whole situation? Like, tell us about how that happened. So I got one of the letters that I wrote set in motion the chain of events by which I wound up with the Innocence Project agreeing to represent me. The Innocence uh, that, Project. Now, tell us a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah, they're a nonprofit organization in Manhattan, New York, that works to free wrongfully convicted prisoners across the country in those cases where DNA evidence can demonstrate innocence. Nice. Uh, so that was the first factor. Second thing was the district attorney, uh, Janine Pirro, who became the DA before my first appeal was decided, uh, but kept the ball rolling against me, including blocking several attempts at the DNA testing and getting me thrown out of court on the timeliness that we talked about. 
she left office. Sessler allowed me to have the testing that Piero would not. And the third thing is when we took the DNA evidence and put it in the crime in the DNA database, we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank because he, you know, committed an unrelated crime mm-hmm. after committing the crime in my case, which resulted in his DNA being put into the data bank. So uh, September 22nd, 2006, my conviction was overturned after 16 years in prison and I was released and I reported back to court November 2nd, 2006, at which point all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. Wow. And the 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 unrelated case, was that the one that happened after your conviction or was that before? Yes. No, no, that's the one that happened after. Oh, so, wow. had the, had, so had the police not did what they did, had the medical examiner not did what they did, had the prosecutor not did what he did, had the judge not did what he did, then then this other the second victim, Patricia Morrison, she she would not have been killed. She would still be living. Oh man. So so you're out now. And what was it like being being out there? You know, like you're breathing you're breathing free air. You're out, you know, all of the charges and everything have been dropped, but at the same time, there's that still public perception that that kind of hangs over everything. What was that like kind of getting back into the world and trying to basically like reintegrate yourself back into everything? It was very difficult reintegrating back into society. Once the actual perpetrator was arrested and convicted, which was, you know, a little bit late later on, you know, and then ultimately a report came out, which broke down like everything that happened in my case that culminated into my wrongful conviction and ultimate imprisonment for 16 years. So once all of that happened, you know, it was pretty much clear to everybody that I was innocent. So there really, except in certain small pockets, there wasn't much doubt about my innocence, but the the issue came in in the following ways. So uh, there was a social stigma. So you were in prison for 16 years wrongfully. Yes. Mm-hmm. But you were there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Is it safe to be alone someplace with you. Uh, I was released with nothing. New York State does have compensation law that you can seek compensation, but you have to file a lawsuit. That's a process. It ultimately took me five years before I was compensated. So my point is that there was nothing to help me get from point A to point B. So I was never able to, to obtain gainful employment. I was making money doing speaking engagements, but that's not a consistent form of income. I caught on as a weekly columnist but they only wanted one article a week. So, you know, I didn't have very much money and uh, I lacked stability of housing. At one point I was a couple of weeks away from the homeless shelter. Wow. Um, the, it felt like I was in a parallel universe because technology was much different. So cell phones, GPS, internet that hadn't been created yet, but I was last free. Culture was different and neighborhoods looked different. So cumulatively, it felt like I was in a parallel universe, one that I didn't uh, belong belong in. It was very it was very lonely. Psychological after effects. So it's typical when people have been wrongfully imprisoned that they have after effects. So post traumatic stress syndrome, mm-hmm. um, panic attacks, anxiety, fear on seeing law enforcement, feeling of processing things at a slower speed, feeling of uh, having been frozen in time. So I was released when I was thirty two. Right. But I felt like I was 17 because that was how old I was when I was last uh, free. Yeah. So yeah. All, all, so all of those all, all of those things were 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 factors. So that was extremely it was extremely difficult. At the same time, though, while while experiencing all that difficulty, I did kind of sort of have a lightning bolt moment, yeah. which was that when I was released, 
I spoke at a press conference and I gave like an off the cuff and an unanticipated two, two and a half hour of everything I could uh, always wanted to say, but could never get anyone to hear. And I realized then that I could be an advocate without necessarily being an attorney. And so I did a lot of advocacy work while experiencing all of that adversity that I that I that I mentioned um, to you. So I was speaking, I was writing articles, I was treating privacy for awareness. So I kept doing media interviews. I was regularly meeting with elected uh, officials. I did get the scholarship from Mercy College to get the bachelor's degree. And when I lost a temporary housing and was on the verge of entering a homeless shelter, they allowed me to live on campus. So that's how I avoided that. And, you know, I was rather foolishly thinking at that point that, you know, I, you know, it was I was too old to go to school, but I really didn't. Well, I was just kind of floundering around. I didn't know what to do. Yeah, and yeah. so they came along with their scholarship offer. And I was able to not just graduate, but I was able to springboard from that and also get a master's degree from John Jay College of Criminal Justice, you know, with a thesis written on wrongful conviction causes and reform. Wow, that's fan- that's fantastic. So just real quick, just kind of going back a little bit, you you were arrested at 16, convicted at 17. That's around the time when everyone really kind of has a sense of what they want to do with their lives. Like once they go into college and after college and everything, what were your initial thoughts? What were you going, planning on being when you grew up, when, when all this was happening? I wanted to happen, really. Absolutely. I wanted to be an attorney, but it was not to do criminal justice work or anything to do with wrongful conviction. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to be an attorney because, you know, my I, I met I met my mother's personal injury attorney a couple of times. He was well dressed, you know, had the suit, the taxi case, and he mm-hmm. appeared to be well respected. He, he appeared to be making, you know, good money. And I wanted to do that based okay. on that. Okay. So so law was at some point going to be a part of your life. It just obviously happened in a much different way than than you would have expected than anyone would have expected correct uh, yeah so so you have this opportunity you're able to you know get things going with with your bachelor's you go forward with your master's which is fabulous and is that where kind of where you realize like hey i have i have a path here Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it it is. But just a little bit past that point. So at that point, I I was compensated and I started the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, Mm -hmm. as we talked about at the beginning. And at some point, I felt like I I wasn't it wasn't enough for me to be in the front row of the courtroom when somebody was, you know, it was an effort at at freeing someone who was wrongfully in prison. Uh, I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table. I wanted to be able to represent some of the clients. I wanted to be able to make some of the arguments. And so I decided to decided to go into law school Mm -hmm. Uh, to take a half step back myself. The second point that I thought about being a lawyer beyond my teenage years, the other point, I I remember I was in Sing Sing, a correctional facility in maybe like three, two or three. Well, I'm sorry. No, that was about three years, two or three years before I was released. I remember just sitting there like, sitting down in my cell and holding on to the damn cell bars and just kind of wistfully thinking, you know, man, if I ever manage to get out of here, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to become a lawyer and <laughs> I'm going to free other people in this position, yeah, you know, yeah. but then I thought to my, but then I tempered my own daydream. I, yeah, well, good luck with that. Okay. Here and here doing a life sentence, your appeals are over and you know, no one's answering your letters. This you'll never get the opportunity. So that's folding back to it, not being enough to, uh, simply be in the front row of the courtroom, I decided to 
make a foray into law school. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was actually my first attempt. So when I got graduated with the bachelor's, I tried to get into law school, but mm-hmm. my LSAT, my law school entrance exam test score was not high enough. And so 11 schools declined to let me go. And so as a consolation, six months after that, I decided to get the master's degree. Mm-hmm. And you know, then our work took place in the foundation that we've talked about. And I decided to take a uh, second stab at it. I was actually, I, I had just finished doing a presentation in front of, uh, in front of judges, actually. They wanted me to come and talk about some awful conviction topics. And I was chit-chatting in a hallway with the judge. And she said to me, you know, why, why don't you, why, why don't you go and why don't you go to law school? Why don't you just go and get, just go and get the piece of paper, get the credential. I mean, you know, this topic better than some lawyers, even better than some judges. Otherwise, why would we have you here to why would we have you here to present? And so that kind of ended the debate in my mind whether I wanted to again make it an attempt to go to to, to 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 go to law school. You know, it was three long, hard years that I knew it would be, most of which would pertain to studying legal topics that had nothing to do with, you know, wrongful conviction or criminal law. But that ended the debate in my mind and I decided to to go. And ultimately I did graduate uh, law school and I've, you know, become an attorney. Wow. So, so you go through, go through that whole process, you become an attorney now and, but, mm-hmm. but tell us a little bit about the, the first over, you know, overturning that you were able to accomplish with the foundation. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was the William Lopez case. And funny, you should mention that because um, a little bit earlier this morning, you know, Facebook gives you memories like this day in history, however yeah. many years ago from mm-hmm. your own timeline. And there was actually a picture of me and and our client and, and my friend, William Lopez, uh, a picture showed up and, you know, that was Bill and I had went to the Innocence Network conference. And that's a get together of a who's who in the field, all everyone doing this policy work and, 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 and freeing people along with a ton of exonerees also. So Bill came with me to this. It's, a, it's an annual gathering. Mm-hmm. So coming, going back to his case, though, so Bill had a pre-existing legal team that had been with him for nine years, but the foundation joined the effort. We were with him for his his last year, and it was kind of like a building was built, but it was missing a section. So we helped we helped find some additional evidence that that proved to be pivotal. So Bill, we took his case and kind of left off the pages because originally the original description was two dark-skinned Panamanians, six one, six two. And Bill was a five foot seven, light skinned Puerto Rican. Mm. The the weight estimation was people that were a hundred pounds heavier than he was. It started out as a two witness case, but one of the witnesses could not identify him in court. The second witness had been up for twenty four hours, had been had done twelve vials of drugs, wow. and she and she claimed to be testifying because it was the right thing to do, although she was released from jail miraculously one day after he was found guilty. And then his lawyers had talked him out of calling his alibi witnesses as to testify in the courtroom. So his case left off the pages. Ultimately, he was he was exonerated. He, he was released after 23 and a half years. Wow. Um, but, you know, but 23 his, and a half years? Yes. Oh, 23 man. and a half years. Yes. Yeah, but I mean, his his basically his whole adult life was was stolen from him, you know, because not just the length of time, but just what happened afterwards, which was, yes. that, you know, he he only lived a year and a half after being released. Oh, no. 
Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. And I was even all set to ask, like, what did, you know, what did William do after, after he was released? Was he able to at least, you know, like with that limited amount of time left, was he able to, was he able to do something similar to what you've done? Just kind of commit yourself to making sure yeah, that he was. goes through that again? Yeah, he was. He, 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 he was. Whenever I would call him up, you know, he would answer the phone and he, you know, we would go, we went on a ton of interviews together, not just in New York, but in other states. Mm-hmm. And we would have different fundraising events. He would, he would show up uh, when we, we would make, we would go to our, the uh, we would go to Albany, New York state's capital and meet with elected officials. And he would come with us and, you know, we would reference, you know, his, his case as a concrete example of why we needed wrongful conviction prevention measures to be enacted into law. So yeah, he did, uh, you know, he, he did, he did, he did spend quite a bit of time with me, you know, doing, doing advocacy work. And, you know, we really became, we really became friends. So, you know, we, we did different things together. I mean, we went to some amusement parks and we went to, we went to some restaurants and look, Bill, Bill got so comfortable, we got so comfortable with each other. Sometimes he would show up at my door unannounced and uh, I'd open up the door and he'd be there and, he, and he'd come <laughs> in and, and he'd be, he'd have his hand behind him and he was trailing, he was trailing a piece of luggage that had like wheels on it. And I'd, oh, oh, man. Oh, Bill, you got your luggage in? What's going on? I'm staying over the weekend. All right, Bill. Well, you know where your bedroom is. So. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Great. So, yeah. So we went to the annual anyway, Posted pictures, and you know, I remember there was a time we went to uh, Playland, which is in Ryan, New York, and they had oh, this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, so they had like a cutout mm-hmm. where you could stick your face in and everything there. And he sticks his face in, and we took a picture, and he posted it. You know, my, you know, first his first experience doing that. So we did do some, we did do some fun things, and I try to take heart in the fact that look, he died, he died a free man, mm-hmm. he died recognized and as an innocent man. Yeah. And I like to believe that that year and a half that he did have of freedom, you know, was could be counted within the top four to five years of his life. Mm-hmm. So I think I try to take some heart in that rather than him just dying in prison, as uh, so many people do with their innocence, never known yeah. uh, by the world. Have you have you done any sort of exoneration for people posthumously? No, we have not done any exoneration works for any for anybody posthumously. Everyone that we've gotten out is, you know, is alive. And, you know, the unfortunate reality is that at least at this point in time, in, in, in terms of our budget, I mean, it would it would take an awful lot for us to do something posthumously when there's so many people waiting that are still alive. I mean, that's just an unfortunate practicality uh, of that situation. Yeah. Yeah. So was so. With you, you said that you've been able to overturn 10 convictions, correct? Well, we've been able to free 10 people. So let's get into the weeds a little bit of that. Yeah. So three, three of those were exonerations. Mm-hmm. Another, another case was our, our client. So he, our client had did 16 and a half years. The conviction was overturned based mm-hmm. on legally insufficient evidence. He was released. Right. The United States Supreme Court reinstated his conviction four months later. So really? he had to go back to prison where he stayed for another five years while the fight continued. And eventually, uh, in a five-way collaboration, which the foundation was part of, new evidence was uncovered showing that the only witness against him actually had been an alternative suspect, and that had not been discovered. The, mm. the motive witness had a familial relationship with the lead detective's mother that had never been disclosed. 
Oh. Uh, and then there were several hundred pages of documents that were supposed to have been turned over, but were not. So all of that formed the basis of why he was given a post-conviction hearing to, you know, for his innocence claim and the, you know, claim that evidence had been withheld. And so a couple of days before the hearing, the attorney general's office, you know, told them, look, you can fight this out. Maybe you'll win. Maybe you won't. We're certainly going to appeal. If we lose, we've already won before on all those appeals before you got out. We got it over. You got you, your conviction reinstated after it was reversed. And we've been winning ever since. Yeah. So, you know, why don't you think about this? This is a life without parole sentence that you're doing. You can fight it out. Maybe you win. Maybe you don't. Or if you want, instead. You can go home uh, tomorrow if you take this deal. Mm-hmm. Just take this no low contender plea. You know, it says that, you know, you're, you're telling the court you're innocent, but you don't want to fight anymore. You know, and you'll be released immediately on parole, but you're going to continue to have a, a conviction. And, yeah. you know, we told him don't do it. Everyone else in the, the other four entities in the collaboration told him to do it. And, he, you know, he decided to do it. He wanted to spend a little bit of time with his mother who, you know, wound up you know, passing away within a year of him actually doing, you know, take, take, regaining his freedom by taking the deal. So that was the fourth person. Then yeah. the other six people were via parole. So normally when somebody goes to the parole board, if they maintain their innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, they're almost always denied parole, which results in an extension of an already unjust prison stay. You know, yeah. we saw that that happened in in my story. So policy-wise, if any of our clients come up for parole prior to us exonerating them, then we try to get them released on parole so that they can wait while efforts continue, but they can wait while while being in the street rather than behind the wall. Yeah. So yeah. so despite that general dynamic of innocence maintaining equals denial of parole, we've been able in six instances to help free help help free people through through parole so that's the, the those are the other six so that's the the weeds of the 10 people that we've been able to free gotcha gotcha and i can't help but wonder and i'm i doubt you know that they that they would have had the decency to do this but any did anyone that was involved in your conviction ever approach you after you know like after the fact and apologize no nobody nobody ever did i did get a symbolic apology from the prosecutor and the judge, but that was not the judge or the prosecutor that was originally involved in my case. They were just the counterparts to that, you know, later on. Nobody ever apologized uh, to me, except the actual perpetrator. But yeah, he his, his apology was kind of tempered significantly because he mixed in his apology with the lie. You know, he claimed that had he known I was doing time for his crime that he would have spoken up and said something, but he lived in Peekskill. That was a small city, as you know, 25,000 people. Everybody was talking about the case and my case. And, you know, there's, in fact, I've met people afterwards since I've been home that Mm -hmm. knew him prior to his being arrested. And they told me, they confirmed that they had conversations with him about the case. I mean, you know, he didn't admit guilt to them, but he talked to them about the case. The point being, he knew that somebody was doing time for his crime. So that really, that apology really didn't, didn't mean very much in light of that uh, lie. Yeah. It's, yeah. It seemed like, seemed like with that kind of a town, you have to go out of your way to avoid hearing something like that. You know, as soon as he talks about it, you just got to slam your head, hands over your ears and just walk away from everything. Right. So, <laughs> that's, Wow, that, that's that's amazing. You what you're doing this this whole mission 
is just absolutely stellar. And I hope that it continues on as best it, as best it could. I hope that all of my listeners here have really been able to take in this incredible story. And I really hope that all of you go ahead and support the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. It really is doing some wonderful work and it really is hopefully inspiring other people to step up and really contribute the way that the way that you do. And so this is definitely a an out of the out of the ordinary Excelsior journey. But at the same time, you are on this incredible journey that I really hope that a lot of other people emulate. Yeah, I I, I, I appreciate the words and I, I agree with you. And I really would like people to emulate to emulate that. I wish that there were you know more people that would that would get involved. Maybe they they hear this and then they they do something similar. Other people exonerated or whenever you were or even just genericizing a little bit more, expanding out a little bit. I mean, whatever difficult situation that somebody went through in the course of their life. I mean, once you overcome that, once you come out the other side, mm -hmm. you know, reach, you know, get involved as an advocate, reaching back to help other similarly situated people, whether that's, you know, women that have been involved in, you know, a, a abusive relationships or God forbid have been, been sex trafficked or, you know, people who've you know, escaped uh, oppressive regimes. I mean, there's no, there's no limit to the, the, the application, that same paradigm that, that I, that I do can be applied to other situations. And I got to tell you that it is, it's very, it's very meaningful doing this work. It's healing. It's cathartic. You know, it makes a difference. I think that other people will will find it that way as well. And look, just living a purpose-driven life, a selfless life, trying to be, you know, make leave the world better, be pleasing to God, all, all those things together. You know. Absolutely. Make the world better. That's what this is, that's what this is all about. That's what this show has been all about. So this really does you know, absolutely without question qualifies as a true Excelsior journey to continue to better yourself, to better your community, to better your people, and to better the world as as a whole. You know, like what you're doing right now. And and I hope that all of you are are paying attention. There is hope in in all of this. And I hope that all of you have grasped onto that as well and continue to support people like Jeffrey who are doing this great work. So for Jeffrey Deskovic, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, Ever Upward, and I will see you next week. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. 
So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today.